<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So I am stoked for this episode. I am so honored to be in the esteemed company of not one, but two badass women I have looked up to my whole life, role models, rebels, and most of all, the topic today which is rock goddesses. That's today's theme. And I can't think of two better experts on the topic than the women I have on today because they have talked the talk and rocked the rock. So my first guest today is my fellow LA native. And if I'm not mistaken, she might actually be a fellow Valley girl. She is the woman who inspired me to dip dye my ends of my hair. And she released one song in the 1980s that pretty much taught me more about sex than anything I learned at Taft High in sex ed class. A woman who still takes my breath away, Terry Nunn of Berlin. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you, Tara. I'm so excited to get into it. But we have another guest I got to introduce. She almost needs no introduction. I'm going to do it anyway. We have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, considered one of the greatest hard rock power singers of any gender or any decade, who, with her sister Nancy, kicked open doors for women in rock in the 1970s, the 80s, and beyond. It is Ann Wilson of Heart. Yes. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. I am incredibly excited by this. So I have to ask you guys, do you two know each other, or is this herstory being made that I've gotten you together for the first time? You must have crossed paths before. Oh, yeah. Our- yeah, we played together a couple of times. Tell me about when you've done that. We opened for them at one place, and then another place was a festival, and we were playing the same festival. It was outdoors, the second one. The first one was indoors. And the reason I also love this day, Anne, is because even though we did meet backstage and hung out a little bit, you know, we were busy and everything was going on. And I didn't get to tell you what an honor it is for me to have gotten to play with you because you are one of the reasons I sing. I mean, I, I, Uh. I looked up to very few women Of course, there are a lot of great women artists out there, but I was looking for women like you, women who were ballsy and blunt and honest and loud and strong. And there weren't many of you before you. The only ones I remember were Grace Slick and Janis Joplin. That was about it for me. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. It was really wonderful to get that chance. Well, thank you very much. That's hugely flattering. Just to think that something I might have done even inadvertently, you know, like saying, uh, would inspire you is really cool. Thank you for telling me. 
Wow. Well, thank you for being on. I am hugely flattered that you came on my show and I'm already feeling inspired. But it's interesting that you bring up that point, Terry, about how before and you didn't have a lot of role models. Because I do think, although there was definitely some stuff about women in music in the 80s that wasn't so great. And we'll definitely talk about, you know, some of the stuff that MTV perpetrated. I know, Anne, you have thoughts about that. I know you have mixed feelings about the 80s era of heart. But growing up in the 80s, I do think there were a lot of strong women, many of whom I saw on MTV. Heart was definitely one of them. Berlin was definitely one of them. We can get into some of the other people, everyone from Cindy Lauper to Pat Benatar to Susie Sue to Annie Lennox in her suit looking all androgynous. Like there were a lot of strong female archetypes in the 80s. So I'd love for you just generally before we kind of get into your own careers, like talk about how I do think in, in many ways it was a good time for these kind of badass iconoclasts, even someone like who's not really a rock goddess, but someone like Jody Watley or Madonna or whatever. Like there were a lot of like badass women on my MTV screen when I was a kid. Yeah, definitely. The gripe I have with the 80s really wasn't about the women themselves. It was about what they had to go through to come to the forefront and be able to do their thing. I mean, you had to look a certain way. You had to dress a certain way. You were at the mercy of stylists a lot of the time. So authenticity was not forefront at all. In fact, I think the 80s were all about how inauthentic can you be? <laughs> and it was fun for a while. The theater of it was fun. Right. How do you feel about that time, Terry? Because, you know, by the time the 80s came around and, and sort of that MTV packaging, that glossy packaging, the image stuff that Anne spoke about, Hart were already an established band. Obviously, there was kind of a second act and a more even more commercial act in the 80s for Hart. But like Berlin basically were born on MTV. My first memory of Berlin is seeing the Metro video. And, you know, you kind of came up and had to work that system, game that system to make a name for yourselves. Obviously, it's a little bit of a different experience. What is your thought about the whole image for the struggle that women had to go to to make a name for themselves in the 1980s? Well, I found that to be an issue growing up watching all of it. You know, in the 60s when we had record stores and I was, you know, we had a record store, mom, pa record store, and I was eight years old and I would play records while I ran the cash register. You know, I'm looking at Grace Slick. I'm looking at Joni Mitchell. I'm looking at Laura Nero, you know, all these women. At that time, it's like most of them had to have long hair and a guitar and be sweet, you know? And I was like, well, why can't they be loud like Grace? You know, why can't women be like that? And then in the 70s, Anne showed up and it got more open and more expressive to me for women. So the 80s, honestly, I was working so much. I didn't really think about what other images were happening. We got lucky because I started in 1979 with Berlin. And 1982 is when MTV started and they had no videos. It was a 24-hour video station with not enough videos. So we were into videos and being cinematic and they played our video to death. And that was lucky for us because they didn't have anything else. I don't think they played the video for sex very much. They did not as much. They, you know, they got very mad at us for the few that we first, <laughs> they just made us edit it and edit it. What they didn't like was the food scene. Like they didn't like watching 
people swallowing oysters. You have to get rid of that. You know, I don't know. It was just this was several of- years before nine and a half weeks when eating food and having sex went hand in hand. Yeah. But wow, of all the things they could have edited out of that, that would not yeah, have been what I would have There's a lot of censoring, definitely, from, from them, yeah. Well, since we're talking about image stuff, before we get into more of that, I mentioned at the top of the show, so I got asked, where did the, like, black ends of the hair thing come from? Which you sort of are rocking a modified version of it still, Terry. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, by necessity, I was trying to have big hair, you know, because I grew up with the Farrah Fawcett crowd. And my hair isn't really, it's very thin and and it just hangs there. So, you know, I'd go out on stage and after I teased it up and put all kinds of hair spray on it, by the second song, it was done. It was... So my keyboardist, who's still in the band, he was also a hairstylist. He said, well, why don't we go with color? I said, okay, what's different? Because I wanted to be different. And he said, well, let's try this. So he tried, he just made the ends black because then I didn't have to do anything with it. It just hung down. Mm. So that worked out. Good to know. So to go back, you know, like I mentioned to you and, you know, we're talking about MTV and style and stuff. And although Heart were already an incredibly established band by the mid eighties, when you had, you know, huge songs like Alone and Nothing at All and These Dreams, et cetera. It did introduce you to a different audience. And like I mentioned, you've had some mixed feelings about the era. Now, I would see you and Nancy on MTV. I remember specifically the Nothing at All video where you're trying on clothes and like, you know, figure out which clothes to wear on a date or there's a cat in the video. I liked the cat in the video in the elevator scene. It all is completely seared into my brain. But you weren't a huge fan of all that poodle hair and spandex. I loved it all. Obviously I'm pro, but you know, I know that you weren't so crazy about some of the things that you mentioned kind of stylists maybe pressured you to wear or whatever. Yeah. What were the fashion don'ts or do's? The fashion don'ts were wearing your own clothes. Mm. Okay. <laughs> they didn't want that <laughs> for heart. There was a really tight version of what they wanted us to look like. And it was based on Porn. Really? Basically, the, the little lace mitts and the, you know, all the stuff that was sort of hypersexualized and all that. And I don't know, Nancy and I were raised by a mother who was, I guess you could call her a feminist, you know, from three generations back. It didn't sit well, but then, you know, here comes all the money and here comes all the cool gigs and the stadium shows and everything. And you forget about it. Until later. I'm interested in this. Did they actually specifically say like, hey, here's a Tracy Lord's video or whatever, like dress like this or let's recreate this vibe or whatever. Like the porn thing, of course, you know, eyebrows raise when you bring that up. Yeah. Like, did you specifically get that memo? Yes. Especially my sister. I think they probably looked at me and went, well, we don't want to cross her too much. (laughs) with this so let's just let's work with her a little bit but my sister definitely was pegged as the little sex bomb you know and uh, (laughs) I mean everything in the 80s was kind of extreme for better or worse sometimes for worse obviously I mean even you know if there was a music video where it was a male artist we had women in cages or supermodels or whatever exactly right yeah Is there anything, either of you can both answer this, that a label 
photographer, video director, whatever told you or sternly asked you to do where you absolutely just said no effing way and put your foot down? Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of things like at first when they were going to throw Nancy in a vat of gold paint, like I just went, no, (laughs) no, that's paint. It's toxic, you know, or the time that they were going to have her jump off this super high cliff thing with her guitar on in a bungee harness. And she did it like three or four times. And it was so dangerous that it really struck me that this was crazy, you know, and I got all emotional and stuff. So they put a stop to that. Good. I do think the gold paint thing did happen though. DC's yes, video? Okay. It I did. hope they use non-toxic paint. I mean, yeah. who knows in the 80s what they were using. Yeah, and the fog that they would use back then was the particulate kind that got in your nose and got in your clothes and got in your hair and all that kind of stuff. And the Aquanet fumes, too. I mean, there was a lot oh, of things. Yeah. There were a lot of exposure to the elements there, the sorry ozone layer. But, it, Terry, did you have any, you know, experiences where you were being pressured to do something that you didn't feel comfortable with and took a stand or didn't take a stand and, and, you know, cause you didn't feel like you could. Not in video. Cause we were really into it. In fact, when we first started talking to record labels, we picked Geffen because he gave us a video budget. Mm. The other ones are like, ah, this is flash in the pan. MTV won't do anything. This is stupid. Mm. We're not getting any money for that. We wanted that. When we did the Bonnie and Clyde video, I mean, that that it was a concept based on it was the first time I got kissed was watching Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. You know, this was a big deal. So we wanted to play Bonnie and Clyde. So we had a lot more control over the videos and what we wanted to do with them, maybe because it was early on and they didn't know what to do anyway. I don't know. So, you know, I didn't get that problem with that. But aside from video, was there anything that you had to battle? Yes. I mean, I'm sure both of you did. And it was a boys club in the 80s still. The head of the label, David Geffen, once said to me, you cannot date this particular man. I hope it wasn't Michael Hutchins, because that would be reason to leave Geffen Records. <laughs> no, it wasn't Michael Hutchins. I would be like, sorry, David Geffen, I, uh, you, can, <laughs> you can tear up my contract. I'm well, that's up. what I said, because <laughs> I you mind. Can, can you say who it was? Yeah, I was Richard Blade. I was dating him. Richard Blade inspired the song Sex, so clearly it was a... Yes, and Geffen wasn't happy about it. For people who aren't in L.A., is that because he was a DJ at K-Rock at the time? Right, and it's the only time that I ever said to get... Because he scared me, you know, I was so excited to have a job and be on his label. But at that meeting, I said, you will not tell me who I date. This is a business, and we're going to talk business stuff, but not my personal life is off the table for what we talk about. Wow. That's okay. So he must have thought that like, if things didn't work out with Richard Blade, and by the way, even though obviously you guys aren't dating anymore, you guys are still friends. I just recently saw you perform at one of his shows and he came on stage when you did Sex, the song that he inspired. You dedicated it to him. But I guess I imagine at the time, Geffen might have, David Geffen might have thought, oh crap, if they break up and it's acrimonious, that like, Berlin's going to get blacklisted from K-Rock 106.7 FM. Was that the mindset there? Yeah, it made sense because our music was so weird that they were one of the only stations playing us. So it Mm. probably scared Geffen thinking, oh, we're going to lose radio play, I guess. 
Well, let me ask a little bit more about sex before we move on, because as I just mentioned, it was a sex positive song before that was even a term. I poured over those lyrics as a kid, the video, whatever version MTV played, it did get, I think it was more like kind of like, you know, dark, you know, MTV after dark play, but it did get played. Like I remember playing my pleasure victim cassette and my mom being like, what are you listening to? To her credit, she didn't take the cassette away. She like, let me listen to it. But she was, you know, there were some pretty racy lyrics in there. So besides the fact that MTV made you edit out the oyster seed or whatever, what was the general reaction to it in like 1980? I guess it was 1982. You know, were you slut shamed? Again, another term that may not have existed then, but like For everyone who might have thought this is awesome or very sexy or very cool that a woman's owning her sexuality so blatantly like this, I'm sure it got banned in places or people thought it was disgusting or whatever. What was the general public good and bad reaction to that song? Well, now it's nothing. I mean, now they don't even play it anymore because it's not not very uh, forward. But at the time, women hadn't talked about what we did in bed with guys. And for me... It was just about a time where Richard and I weren't really, I mean, it was just getting kind of dull in bed. So I asked him if he would try some role playing, maybe we could have some fun. And he he said to me, you know, Terry, I'm not a pirate, you know, I'm not a burglar. I'm just a guy. Okay. I like guy (laughs) stuff. I'm just a guy. And so I said, okay. So, so the chorus I made, he's just like, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man. Mm. And I'm all these other things, you know, well, I'm this and I'm a geisha and I'm a blue movie and I'm a pirate and I'm a, you know, so I I just had fun with it because, you know, a lot of my girlfriends were getting into that stuff. We were 20 and that's what we talked about. Like, well, what are you doing? You know, what's, what's he doing to you? What are you doing to him? So I put it in a song and that hadn't been done yet. Wow. And did obviously K-Rock, as you mentioned, was an early adopter and not just because of the Richard Blade connection. K-Rock, it's a very different station now, but if you grew up in LA in the 1980s, you'll know that K-Rock was a very adventurous station that broke a lot of bands, played a lot of bands, first played a lot of weird shit. Yeah. But besides K-Rock, like in general, was radio not super stoked about getting on board with a song like that? You know, we got banned in the South uh, pretty much across the board. They they wanted nothing to do with me. I remember there was one show. It was the biggest show that we had ever been scheduled to play for us. It was in Irvine at Del Mar. I think it was 9,000 capacity. That was huge for us at the time. And this priest went on TV. He got a commercial and went on TV down there and said, these are the devil's children. They are out to get your children. Do not go to this concert. I mean, that's a badge of honor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's sold out like an it's hour. Sold out. <laughs> You're like, thanks, priest. Thanks for that. And do you have any stories about people reacting negatively to the messages you were putting out there? Yes, we had our own version of, <laughs> of that. And it started out, really early with Magic Man up in Erie, Pennsylvania. We were playing a festival up there and somehow the word started to circulate and among the people that the Magic Man was Charles Manson, right? Mm-hmm. And that Nancy and I were part of his family and that all the money that Hart made was going to go to Free Charlie. <laughs> I have never heard this rumor before. Obviously, if I'd heard it, I would not have believed it. But what the hell? 
it goes back a, a ways. And then I think the next one that was pretty, we kind of laughed about was the song, All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, Mutt Lang song, was banned in Ireland because it was just too forward. You know, it was maybe about a woman who picks up a strange random man and just proceeds to, well, you know, we can't say it. <laughs> Which is ridiculous, isn't it? Because nothing happens in that song except sex. Yeah. But then she has a baby, right? Yeah, I guess out of wedlock or whatever. So there's that yeah. scandal. But yeah. yeah, a lot of this stuff, you know, when I think about even stuff, you know, I mentioned Madonna a little while back. Even a lot of the stuff that she was up in arms, that people, you know, losing Pepsi campaigns, or she had a song about, you know, getting pregnant out of wedlock, Papa don't preach that people were like, it all seems very quaint now for all the extremism of the eighties. Like it was kind of an innocent time. Like nothing that you guys are talking about is anything like, you know, and I'm not saying anything like the lyrics or music videos that are out now are bad or anything. I'm just saying like, they're definitely more extreme and racier than what you guys were putting out there. Oh yeah, It's kind of crazy that, you know, these things elicited such reactions at the time. Yeah. When I look back on how, uptight and buttoned down those times were it always really amazes me because the change has been so radical in culture now right i mean it's it's yeah. just if it's not super sexy then it's not interesting <laughs> nowadays so well it's interesting that you mentioned and that yeah the 80s were a time of like i guess two extremes like either it was like very racy, sexy stuff like the heavy metal videos with women in lingerie and in cages or stuff Madonna was doing or a song like Berlin Sex or whatever else. But then there was a lot of conservatism going on. You know, Reagan oh, was yeah. the president. And, you know, so like any thoughts on that? Yeah, it was difficult to navigate because as much as you want to follow your own conscience about things, you're in the entertainment business and you've fought hard to get there and you've worked really hard to be able to be up in front of people and give them what they want, you know? So where do you come down on that? <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm really happy that Anne was just talking about this song that she sang, you know, talking about picking up a guy and having sex. This is basically every guy rock song ever written in history. Okay. Other than losing a girl, it's about getting a girl and having sex. That's what rock is for men. So the fact that she opened up that conversation and then I continue to open up that conversation, I think it's great because it should be just as open on both sides to be able to talk what you want to. Well, anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about some movie stuff because both of you sang to epic love ballads of 1980s cinema and you with Mike Reno did almost paradise from footloose. And of course, take my breath away was an Oscar winning song that Berlin did written by, was it written or co-written with Giorgio Moroder? Giorgio Moroder and Tom Whitlock. Okay. Cause Giorgio Moroder, I did an interview with him a few years ago, which as you can imagine was amazing. He actually said it was his song that he's most proud of. Yeah, I know that's huge for me. Because, I mean, that guy, we we would have done anything. He could have farted and I would have sung it. I mean, he we just loved him. You know, he had already done such amazing work. He was his own sound. Everybody came to him for the sound. Bowie and Blondie and, you know, cat people and 
flash dance and fame. I mean, the stuff he was coming out with. And we were just like, please work with us, please, God. And you had a connection with him sort of tangentially already because you'd been in the movie, Thank God It's Friday, at the tail end of the 70s with Donna Summer. And, you know, obviously, like all of her big disco hits were done by him and last dances in that movie. So, like, I don't know if you ever met him back then, but then. I did. And he couldn't give a shit about me. I mean, I was this little stupid actress. I think I was 18 when I did that movie. I, I hadn't met John and started Berlin yet. So I was just, you know, looking at him and Donna Summer singing is like, oh, God, this is this is awesome. He's like, yeah, whatever. Hi. And and, and moves on, you know. <laughs> Aw. I do want to ask you, Anne, about Footloose and, and the song Almost Paradise. That was a huge soundtrack. I've done whole episodes about 80s soundtracks on this podcast. And Footloose, yeah. there were a lot of dance soundtracks. It was like Footloose. It was Fame. It was Flashdance, of course, which also had Georgia Maroder involved with that. How did you get to be involved with doing Footloose or doing Almost Paradise with Footloose? Well, it was like a windfall for me because Hart was in a period where, you know, we, we could get arrested, but we had to really wave our arms around, you know, to get arrested. So here comes this opportunity for me to sing this duet that's going to go into a movie. And I read the script and I listened to the demo and it totally blew me away how gospel it was. And so we we did it. They just asked me and I went and I did it. So I know that Terry with you would take my breath away. And I mean, this with no shade, of course, but I don't believe you were the first person in line to do it. I know there's a version with Martha Davis from the motels floating out there on YouTube. And I don't know who else was considered to do it or demoed it. How did you end up getting to be the singer of this Oscar winning song? getting lucky. We were working with him at that time when he got the job for Top Gun. We were working with him on No More Words and Dancing in Berlin, the two songs. We could only afford him for two <laughs> songs. So we were working in the studio on those and we didn't have any hits. I mean, we were underground, kind of well-known for sex and the Metro, but we were not mainstream. It never had a hit, never had a major charting song. So the producers tried a number of way more successful artists than us. I don't know who else. I just know that we were definitely five or six down the list. Wow. And they were running out of time. So Giorgio said, you know, I have this song. He was Italian. I have this, this, this band. I am playing with them. They are wonderful. You must, you must listen to them. Let me try her on this song. And so they said, all right, well, time's a waste and let's go. So I sang it and I was just such a 20 <laughs> year old, arrogant asshole i thought well i don't like this you know i i, I the, it's it, it's okay but i want to i want to do something else with it i'm not going to get it anyway so i sang it a little different i took his melody i didn't even ask him i just sang it differently i can't believe i did that now but i just said okay well that's how i do it and they loved it wow that was a risk a risk that paid off but yeah that could have yeah. gone very south wow that's amazing since we're talking about the subject of movies, and I have to ask for an update on this Heart biopic that Slater Kenny's Carrie Brown seems supposed to be working on. I, I've talked to you about this before. And also, I've heard, I think you told me actually that Linda Obst, who actually worked on Flashdance, is involved. What is, what's yeah. the update on this? Everybody wants to see this. People are so excited about it. Yeah, I know. And the pandemic kind of slowed him down a little bit, but it's, in the works still. Carrie Brownstein's writing it. I've seen a couple of drafts of the script. 
it's it's good, you know. I mean, she's a great writer. If anybody can capture the story of a couple of women in rock, it's probably Carrie, you know, because wow. she's been there herself. And Linda Obst is one of the producers. Wow. Do you know who's playing you and or Nancy? There have been a few things bandied about, but nothing solid yet. I see. So who would you like to have play you? I'd like somebody who could sing and then... They could sing some, I could sing some, you know. My preference would be somebody young and brand new and fresh, you know. I mean, somebody who's really got their shit together in terms of being into the script. For the record, you can come back to Totally 80s anytime to break the news about who's playing you in the Heart movie. You know, you come to me anytime. I guess I'd like to get into a little bit about what happened in the 80s where there was kind of this double-edged sword where you were having some of the biggest hits you've ever had, but you didn't necessarily have creative control over it. Uh, again, I talked about label pressures and stuff. Where did it come from that these outside songwriters started to come in? Well, at the end of the 70s, Heart was on Epic. And, you know, Epic decided they were done with us. So... We had this awful moment where we were just kind of going, what? We don't have a label. And in those days, you had to have a big label, you know. So this great guy, Don Grierson from Capitol, believed in heart and signed us over at Capitol. So that was like a new Don where he was just saying, I can bring you the hit songs. Just come here and make this devil's bargain and... You know, you can have number ones and you can make all this money. It's going to be great. Just relax. Be happy. He brought us mountains of cassettes, demos. And it it, it seemed to me like every demo had the same singer. They all sounded, (laughs) they were either like men or women, but they all sounded like Rod Stewart, like Kim Carnes in those days. (laughs) So, you know, we picked through them all. And it's funny, Terry, you said that at first you didn't like the song, Take My Breath Away. I had the same reaction to What About Love and to Alone because I thought they were victim songs. Mm. You know, I had my my big alert hat on for victimization. You know, I'm not going to be that. But then once I sang it and we did it my way, then... It was cool. I was cool with it. How did you change up songs that were presented to you to make them less victimized or more Wilsonized? Mm, Just aggression, I think. I think I poured my angst and emo into it. Awesome. So if we're talking about the fact that, you know, it was a mixed bag for you in some ways or for heart, what are your 80s songs that you are most proud of or think rest sit best in the overall heart discography? From the 70s onward. Yeah. I think These Dreams is a great song. It's interesting you point out a song that you didn't sing. I wouldn't have expected right. that would have been the one. Yeah, that's a great song. And it was a perfect marriage with Nancy's voice. Sometimes when that happens, it's like a miracle. The, the song and the voice just marry each other. Yeah. Was there ever a talk that you, since you did sing most of the heart songs, would do it? Did you ever give it a try? Is there a version out there, yeah. a demo version with you? I fought hard for that, (laughs) but it just didn't work with my voice. Wow. It it had to have something more 
ethereal. You know, I was a little bit rocky, I guess. Wasn't that song originally given, you know, as I was talking about with the Take My Breath Away, where a lot of times the song is originally intended or even recorded by someone else. Wasn't Stevie Nicks in the running to do that song or wasn't it written with her in mind? Yeah. And as it turned out, it was the first number one for us. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting to just relax into that as the person who I've given my blood, sweat and tears for this band. And then she gets to sing the first number one. You know. <laughs> yeah, I had mixed feelings, but they didn't last long. I mean, when you have a number one record, I think pretty soon it all goes by the wayside and you just go like, yeah, we're fabulous. Give me some more champagne. I'd love to get your thoughts on your peers in the 80s that you look up to or admired or, you know, whether it was up close or from afar, admiring what they were doing. In general, who were some of the names that popped to mind that you thought were doing really cool, badass things in the 1980s when you were? I think I was more into males in the 80s. Really? Yeah. There were so many of them flowing by like water, you know. I can't really put my finger on a bunch of women. I have a question for you, Anne, yeah. because I know how hard it was for me to find role models. You were one of them who were, as I said, you know, strong and loud and blunt and and in your sexuality and irreverent like the guys. Who did you look up to when you were young, like, you know, in your teens and you weren't doing it yet? Who to you was a strong woman then? Good question. Yeah. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the... Right. Uh, no women. None. No. Right. Well, I definitely liked the women who, you know, I've mentioned some of them already, including yourself, and who were career artists in that, you know, maybe they started in the 70s or in the case of Tina Turner, the 60s, but were still, you know, having huge hits in the 80s. In the case of someone like Tina or Bonnie Raitt, I believe Nick Time came out the very tail end of the 80s or even like Ronnie Spector being on the Eddie Money song. I love the fact, you know, this is such yeah. an ageist world we're in now. You know, I love the fact that there were some, by MTV or pop standards, older women. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people, Yeah, Madonna was 20, I think 25 when her first record came out. Obviously that's young, but in the era of Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo, being 25 is probably considered too old to be releasing your first Yeah, record. you're an old maid. <laughs> I mean, Cindy Lauper, when she's so unusual, girls just want to have fun. Came out, she was thirty. It would be unheard of, almost unheard of. There's maybe some exceptions, but I think it would be pretty unheard of now for a female artists, at least, to be releasing music, a debut album, solo album at that age. Same with Debbie. Debbie Harry was thirty-one when Blondie, yeah, that came out. That's yeah, I know that's unheard of now. Was she a role model to you? Yeah, she was a strong woman. I love her even more now. She is, God, she's like 77 now or yeah. 75 to 77. She's amazing. I mean, she's just beautiful and strong. I mean, we've done a number of shows together now and she's like, ah, what else would I do, Terry? You know, this is, what else am I going to do with my life? You know, she's, <laughs> she's just wonderful. I, I, and she's such a role model to me now. And what I feel that women should see that mm -hmm. this is what 77 looks like. This is what I'm, I'm, how old is she? Definitely on the other side of 75, for sure. 
Because that's what matters to me now is looking at role models of women who are older than me who are still bringing it. On that topic, Pat Benatar, she just got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year on her second nomination. And people were outraged that she didn't get in on her first. And it took a long time for her to get nominated at all. But I don't think you can really underestimate how important she was as kind of like one of the lone female rockers of the early 80s at that like 81, 82. About her and about Anne and about Nancy is that these people didn't croak from too much, you know, self-abuse in whatever form that is. I love that also about Pat. We've also done a number of shows together and she's she's created a life as all of you have with kids and love and a life outside of music that is strong and still, you know, standing tall, healthy, strong. I That's to me as much of a, an example as anything else, because so many of us crash and burn in this world and you haven't and neither is she. So that, that to me is, is such a huge, wonderful example to all of us, to me. And I would say that applies to Chrissy Hind. Reason I have been. Oh, yes. She's amazing. She's awesome. I'm a huge Chrissy Hind fan. I just think she is rock. I mean, she just embodies it. She like wrote all those pretender songs. Like that was her band. That was not a band where they hired a chick to sing because she looked cool. Like that was her band. They were her backup people. Joan Jett, who I know Joan Jett, I saw her open for heart at the Hollywood Bowl maybe three or four years ago, Anne, and Mm -hmm. also a recent, relatively recent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. I'd like to see the Runaways get in as well. Yeah, she's she totally rocks. I mean, she's got her thing honed down to the simplest of the simple, the most essential And she just leans right into it, you know. Jerry Cantrell once said to me, there's only one thing you have to do to have a hit record, and that's find out what your thing is and lean into it so hard people want to puke. (laughs) And and I thought, well, okay, I can, yeah, I can accept that. And I think that's what Joan does. I mean, when she does Mm -hmm. Crimson and Clover, I mean, it, it's almost better than the original, you know. She's really got that one, four, five thing just nailed. It's really cool. Very cool. So since I mentioned the Runaways, you know, I may want to definitely make sure I give them their due. You know, band in L.A. in the 70s that was all women and was kicking ass. But I don't think I can impress upon people. I mean, finally, they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a year and a half ago. But the importance of the Go-Go's to little girls in the 80s. Berlin and Go-Go's were kind of contemporaries. In, I mean, I don't know if you were in the same scene, but yeah. you, know, you were. Yeah, we were going around the club circuit all at the same time. It was the Go-Go's and the Plimsolls and the Cramps, and it was a lot of punk. X. I mean, we got X-Zine was so important yeah, to LA as X-Zine well. Yeah, X-Zine was amazing. The motels. Yeah, it was. we were just all playing the same clubs, trying to you know find ourselves, find our sound. And yeah, the Go-Go's were amazing even back then. I knew something was going to happen for them. A lot of the women we're talking about, Poison Ivy, yourselves, 
X-Zine, Cindy Lauper with the way she dressed, Madonna with the way she dressed. I, and there's not even enough. So I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of names of other people because we don't have time. Wendy O. Williams, Poison Ivy, Grace Jones. We talked a little bit about Annie Lennox. Can't say enough about her. One of the greatest singers ever. Annabella from Bow Wow Wow, even though like her whole backstory is a little weird. But, you know, absolutely a badass. Nina Hagen. Dale Bozio from Missing Persons, the way she dressed and the way she presented herself, whether it might, in retrospect, some of those fashions might seem gimmicky or like nothing we'd want to wear now. Uh, for the record, I'd wear all of their stuff, but you know, <laughs> it's not for everyone. But even like there was a couple of bands from Britain, like there was a band called We've Got a Fuzz Box and We're Going to Use It, an all-girl band that could barely play their instruments. They were awesome. Voice of the Beehive, Strawberry Switchblade. All these women I mentioned, they were just all really strong individuals doing their own thing from my vantage point. Yeah. From my perspective, that's the thing that made them all fantastic is that they had that gumption, that thing that you have to have in order to do this. Mm -hmm. You have to sacrifice everything. You have to be all the way in with both feet and with your soul and everything. Each one of those people you mentioned had that. Sinead O'Connor is another one I wanted to make sure I brought up. I mean, she's paid the price for a lot of kind of going against the grain. She's paid it professionally. She's paid it mentally. But do you think in the 1980s it was easier or harder than it is today for a woman who is just a total iconoclast, total individual, like any of the awesome women we've just talked about and yourselves, to kind of make their mark? Was it easier or harder in the industry than it would be now? I can't speak of what it is now to get through all of that hell that's going on and try and make, you know, try and stand out in some way. I don't know what that is because I didn't come up in this time. I know just the having to pay to play. We didn't have to pay to play. We didn't make any money in the clubs, but we didn't have to pay them. We didn't have money. You know, we just were trying to play. So I don't know what it's like now, but I would like to also speak to all those names that you said, and you included, Anne. So many of them for so long didn't have number one hits, didn't have top 10 hits. Nobody cared. They're amazing. This music was so unique. It was different. It was them. And that's what mattered. And we're still talking about them, even though they didn't have number one hits. That is not what lasts. That's, I can say that very strongly about music in general. That is not what people remember. They remember the person, they remember the body of work, an album. You know, that's what connects us to the people that we love musically. So I just wanted to say that. So true. Absolutely. So, so true. You were so influential, both of you, in your individual careers. Do you have any stories? of musicians, younger modern day musicians, particularly female ones, who have said anything touching or that stuck with you about how you inspired them, maybe changed their lives, anything like that? Well, yeah, I did an interview one time in Rolling Stone and it was an article about women in rock, right? And I mentioned that I thought Taylor Swift at that time was doing things her own way and was stepping out and who was being herself, you know, and being brave. And the next day after the article came out, 
I get this massive flower arrangement from Taylor Swift. And she just said, you've always been my inspiration. If I'm brave, you know, it's, it's because of you. And it, it was so amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's one of those things. Very cool. What about you, Terry? Do you have any stories like that? It doesn't have to be someone famous, but if it is, you know. No woman has ever sent me flowers. (laughs) I I, I don't have one that good, but Quinn Stefani has been very lovely about her feelings about me and Berlin growing up because she came from Orange County where we started Mm. as well. Are you not from the Valley? Did I miss... I am personally, but, but John, my partner forever, he's from Orange County. So I would drive down there, you know, three, four times a week to rehearse. So we're basically an Orange County band. And that's really where we first started getting played on little underground radio stations there. So what did Gwen Stefani say to you? She said things to me personally, and she said things in public. It's been very nice. I I don't remember specific things, but she's been wonderful. That's so cool. I remember one thing that was great because it introduced me. You brought up Jerry Cantrell and he was in a, a band of guys, Dave Navarro and Jerry Cantrell and Matt Sorum on drums. And this was a real hard rock band doing a lot of benefits. And I love hard rock. I've never really been lucky enough to play in a hard rock band like you. And Courtney Love was guesting with them and she, I heard, demanded that they learn the Metro because she said it was the best song ever written. (laughs) And she said, I won't play with you unless you learn that song. And because they learned the song, they called me and asked me to play with them. So I got to play with this band of amazing musicians i mean the rock i see what you live with every day and i'm not used to that i mean when you're playing <laughs> this kind of sound like the guitars are just you know the sound and the drums are hitting you in the back it's so god it's just like it's just all man there's just i mean it, you know you're you're a woman so you do it but it's really it's a to me it's just like there isn't a little bit of woman in it it's just balls to the wall it's yeah. man and i'm in it you know just getting to to play yeah. it's fantastic so that was great Amazing. Well, that's a great way for me to ask my final question, because obviously this podcast is called Totally 80s. So we've done a lot of looking back and talking about the 80s, obviously. But and I remember when I interviewed you a few years ago, something struck me that you said to me about how you didn't want yourself or heart to be just a legacy act. And, you know, Terry, you've been saying a lot of stuff today about, you know, loving people like Debbie Harry or Pat Benatar who are still in it and still playing and still relevant and still, you know, have that hunger and that drive. So how does an artist like yourselves who've been around for a few decades, you know, you want to celebrate your past and you want to celebrate your big hits and play them live. And, you know, the audience wants to hear all those hits, but how do you reconcile that with wanting to be a relevant working artist? Yeah. 2023. You're right. You pay homage to, the songs that everybody loves, right? And you arrange your set kind of with a bed of those. And then you sneak in as many of the new things as you can. (laughs) (laughs) And if people start to 
choose that moment to go out and get a beer or buy a shirt or something, then that's your signal. Maybe you don't put that song there, you know? Like, I like to just operate strictly off of the audience reaction. How do you skirt that line between nostalgia but not being a nostalgia act? Yes. Yeah, I have so much respect for when I go to see concerts, so much respect for bands who have a legacy of material because I know how hard it is to build enough songs like that, you know, going to see the stones and watching two hours of songs. And I knew every one of them, I know how much work that is. And I'm not even close to that. We have maybe 40 minutes of songs in a set that people know. So I have a different feeling about legacy. I want to hear an artist songs that I know. That's why I'm going. I'm a musician. I'll go and listen to new songs. But that is, why can't they feel honored that they have songs that they work that hard for that I'm showing up to listen to and pay money to see them to hear? That's why I'm there. So I don't look at it as, oh, I've got to play my songs that they know. I'm lucky that they came to see and they're still coming to see. So for me, yeah, it is. I want to do new stuff because it keeps me pumped and it keeps me fresh. And I love that. And I'm really okay with playing the songs that they know because they love it. And that's why they, they came. And I'm, I'm good with that. Well, I'm glad that both of you came to Totally 80s today because it has been such a treat to talk about everything going on that you did in the 80s that we're still talking about because it was such important work and about all your important peers. Before I let you go, is there anything you guys want to let me know what you're doing right now in the year 2023 in terms of new music or touring or... And you can drop more facts about the heart movie if you've been holding out on me. <laughs> but anything else you want to talk about that you're up to now before I let you go? Well, I am working on a new album. I'm still in the studio writing. Actually, Nancy's going to come and play. Oh, and wow. Be part of that. All right. Is this the first time? How long has it been since you guys have um, recorded together? Obviously, you tour and stuff. But when was the last time you were in the studio together? The studio... God, 10 years, something like that. What sparked you guys getting back in the studio together? Just peer group pressure, I think. <laughs> and just be because there's lots of good song ideas coming up, and she's got some and I've got some. So we're just going to see how it goes. Do you think that this will be billed as an Ann Wilson album that Nancy happens to guest on, or is this heart material we're talking well, I think we're seeing it as by the song. So if it's a song that is right for heart, then it'll be on a heart record, you know. Mm. The songs tell you what to do. Awesome. Well, whatever you call it, I can't wait to hear it. I'm really excited to hear you, you guys are back in the studio. If I was part of that peer pressure, I'm sorry. And also, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Whichever. I, I'm, I've been excited to hear you guys you know, make some new music for sure. And I will be very happy if you play it at concert. I will not go get a t-shirt. I will not go get a beer. I will sit. Okay. <laughs> and what about you, Terry? What are what are you up to professionally or personally? A holiday album. Really? Our first one. 
as Berlin. Matter of fact, I'll put it out there. And I would love you to come duet with me on something. If you ever were in the mood, I would come to you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that would be awesome. It'd be a Christmas miracle. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's the album going to be called? A Very Berlin Christmas? That's not bad. <laughs> you can have that one. <laughs> I'm full of ideas. And we're doing a tour of Australia with Culture Club in September. And then the last thing, which is kind of interesting, is like Anne's movie, Richard Blade's book has been optioned by a producer and writer, and they've decided that they want the story to be about our love affair. Holy cow. And they're calling it No More Words. Oh, my stars. So it's a movie. Who is playing you? They are interested in Florence Pugh. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Julia Garner, Holy who was not available God. because she was going to play Madonna. But now that that's over, now they're interested in her, too. This is insane. I have it so many insane. movies I cannot wait to see. I, this is going to be the double feature, the heart movie and the No More <laughs> Words movie. Oh, my God. The, the almost paradise singer and the take my breath away. Singer. The soundtracks alone. Oh, my God. I am so excited. You don't even know. I'll have you and Richard Blade come on, talk about it. I cannot wait to see what liberties they take, though, because, you know, I just watched the Spinning Gold Casablanca Records movie, and I liked it. Just going to put it out there. I liked it, but they definitely took it. Is it a documentary? What is that? No, it's a biopic of uh, Neil Bogart, who founded Donna Summer's label, Casablanca Records. And they definitely, there's definitely some factual stuff that did not happen. Like, but that's for the totally 70s podcast. We don't need to go there. We can take that conversation <laughs> offline. In the meantime, I want to say this conversation has been absolute delight. And not only was I so excited for the whole time we were talking, but now I'm so excited. Oh, it's got to come. Thank you for sharing all that news. Thank you so much to my guests, Ann Wilson and Terry Nunn, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening to these fabulous rock goddesses. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I'll catch you next time. was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Totally 80s.